Here, I just want to tell him thank you for uh, filling in last week. He did a great job. We're blessed to have him and Kelly here with us. Uh, I left and, and gave him a lot to do that day. He had to do men's Bible study. He had to preach. He had to do Lord's Supper. He had to do the manor service that afternoon, which he got a new gig singing at the manor now, which I think is funny. Um, and then he had to go to the community service that evening, and he handled all those things wonderfully. I didn't worry about a thing. And so uh, make sure you tell him thank you for, for just all his service and his work here at First Baptist Church. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of James. James will be uh, towards the back of your Bible. It'll be right before 1 Peter. Go to James and then move to James chapter 5. And while you're going there, I'll just explain to you again that, that Advent means coming uh, or arrival. And, and so for us as Christians, uh, it, it means more than just some celebration of some uh, historic moment that happened 2,000 years ago. Advent is celebration that Christ has come and that His power is at work in the present day and that Christ will return. And this time he will not return as a baby, but he will return as a ruling king. And so over the next few weeks, as we speak about Advent, as we look at Advent and we look about what all that means, I don't want us to gather here and, and just get together and go, oh, isn't that great? You know, oh, six pound baby Jesus was born in his golden fleece diaper and um, we, we love him and, and isn't that so awesome? Oh, look how cute he is, right? Because that's not exactly what we're celebrating. It's part of it. Yes, and amen, and we should rejoice in that, and we should celebrate in that. But it's not all of it because we're also looking forward to the day when he will fix everything. See, in Advent, we look behind us, but we look forward to what's coming. And one of the things that you're going to see this Christmas season are, are shadows that are all over the place. You're going to see manger scenes in people's lawns. Uh, you'll see it in people's houses. Some people will have, you know, Santa kneeling down to, to baby Jesus at the manger, whatever that means. And those things are all shadows. They're to remind us that Christ has come. You're going to see shadows that he's at work in the world today, all right? Some of you that, that love your Hallmark channel, you've been watching it since August, right? Every one of those movies are going to show you happy endings and reconciliation that occurs with family and friends, etc., etc. All those are shadows. They're meant to show you that what will happen on the second return of Jesus is that all those things will take place. There'll be reconciliation. Everything will be made right. God will right all wrongs. And so when we see those things, we're meant to look at those things and to remind ourselves of what will happen when he returns, okay? And so over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look back and remember that he's come and he's, he's lived for us, he's died for us, but then we always want to turn our eyes to the fact that he is coming again, okay? So with all that being said, read with me, if you will, in James chapter 5, we'll start in verse 7. James says this, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given us. Father, I pray that we would again set our eyes 
um, and remember that, that you have come into this world, that we would set our eyes forward remembering that you're coming back. And so today as we begin the Advent season, as we begin the Christmas season officially, uh, I, I pray that, that you help us um, with our patience as we await the return of the Lord. Because the reality in this room is, is that, Father, some of us um, have had rough years. Some of us have had difficult years. And sometimes when we come to this time of the season, it's not a happy time of the year for us, but it's just something to be endured and it's just something to get through. And Father, I, I pray today that, that you would help us to strengthen our hearts, as James says, to remember that all your promises are true, that you have not forgotten about us, that you would give us the endurance to continue to be patient, to keep our eyes focused on you, and to remain steadfast as we await that great and second advent that's coming for all of us. Thank you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so just very quickly, uh, before you, you study any book of the Bible, you need to know what you're, you're studying, you need to know who wrote it, you need to know why they wrote it, because if not, then the odds are you're going to take something out of context, and we don't ever want to do that, okay? And so just very quickly, James was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and the thing that I love about James is that there's great evidence in the Scripture that during Jesus' earthly ministry, James did not think his older brother was the Son of God. In fact, he probably thought his brother was out of his mind. But, but something happened after Jesus rose from the dead. And I would argue that if that's you and that's your brother, if he died and rose again, right? Like if you saw your brother beaten and hung on a cross to die, and then one day he shows up alive and you're eating fish with him, that's going to kind of change something in a person. And that happened to James. He goes from saying, my brother's crazy, my brother needs to be locked up and committed, to saying, he is God. In fact, if you read James chapter 1, verse 1, James says, he is a servant of God, and then he says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. He put his faith in Jesus, and James ends up being martyred. In Jerusalem, not long after this letter was written, a, a mob grabs hold of him, and they force him to the very top of the temple, and they tell James to recant his faith in Jesus Christ. James says, I won't do it. He was God. He came to die for me. He rose again, and he's coming back. And history tells us that he's thrown off the temple. Miraculously, he survives being thrown off the temple. And the mob comes down to him. And a man with a club comes up and tells him one more time to recant. And they'll save his life. And James says, I can't do it. And they bash his head in. And history tells us that right before they bash his head in, that James is on the ground praying for the men who are about to kill him. That's what happens to a person that realizes that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And in James chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us that the letter was written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So the dispersion would refer to a group of Jewish, Jewish house churches in and around Palestine at the time. He calls them the 12 tribes of the dispersion, referring to the tribes of Israel scattered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians in the Old Testament. And so what James is doing by saying that, that, that they are the 12 tribes of Israel is that he's implying that the true Israel is now the church, is now those men and women who have been saved by Jesus Christ and they are scattered throughout the world. They're scattered away from their heavenly homeland. And they may be oppressed. They may be struggling. They may be looking at difficulty. But be rest assured that they are assured of their final gathering to the Lord when he returns. 
And the great thing about the book of James is that a lot of people have called it the Proverbs of the New Testament. And the reason is, is that it's such a practical book, which is the reason why so many people love the book of James, but it's also the reason why so many people avoid the book of James. Because we all want practical advice, but we want practical advice that agrees with what we already think. We don't want practical advice that contradicts maybe what we think or what our heart tells us. And see, James is not concerned about telling us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. And James addresses three simple myths in his book. The first myth that James addresses is that trials are bad. And so throughout the first few chapters, James reminds us that trials are good. That trials strengthen our faith because they grow us and they confirm us more and more to the image of God and they make us more and more like Jesus Christ. That trials are not bad, but that it's God's growth plan. The second myth that James addresses in his book is that faith is what I think. See, we have a tendency to think that I believe in Jesus, I believe that he came to die, and so since I believe in Jesus and I believe that he came to die, then I'm good. And James wants us to know that faith is what you think, but James goes a step further and says faith is also what you do. That the point of hearing God's word is not to simply just know it and go, yeah, that was really good information. I'm going to file that away to use for later. That the point of God's word is to hear it and to do it and to act on it. And then the third myth that James addresses in his book is that religion is a private matter. So so we all have a tendency to see our faith as part of our life, but not all of our life. That Christianity is a private thing, but that's just between me and the Lord. And I would tell you that, yes and amen, that there are parts of your walk that are between you and the Lord. But the Bible would tell you and the scriptures would tell you that your faith is also a very public matter. And see, James spends the bulk of his book trying to correct bad behavior in a stress-ridden, faction-prone church. Mark Dever puts it this way. He says, James knows that so much of our relationship with God will be shown by our relationships with other people. So as a Christian, my primary obligation in this life is not to myself. It is to God and the body of Christ. You and I must realize that our selfishness hurts others and that God will judge us for it. Really, we are to use ourselves for others. We must learn to cherish the opportunity of living in peace through valuing each other. And so these three myths that James addressed all kind of come together right here in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, okay? So look with me, if you will, in James chapter 5, look at verse 7, just the first part. James tells us, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So be patient because the Lord is coming, is what James says. So for Christians, this means that history is linear, Right? We want to often say that the history repeats itself, that it's a big circle, but in reality is history is linear, that it's going somewhere. We're moving towards something. We're not moving away from something. We're moving towards something. We're moving towards the end of the age when Christ returns. We're moving towards the day when he consummates all that he accomplished in his cross and his resurrection. So you and I as believers need to get our minds around this, get our imagination around this, that there's coming a day where our Father is coming to get us. Right? So, so at our house, um, in the morning sometimes, or sometimes Lucy will fall over in her wheelchair, right? 
and, and she has a hard time getting herself up or she can't get herself out of bed. And so she'll call for me or she'll call for Mariah, okay? Now sometimes it gets a little annoying because she keeps doing it, right? But the thing is this, is that she knows in her mind, though, that dad's coming to get me. Right, that, that he's not going to just leave me in the bed, or he's not going to just leave me falling over in my wheelchair. The dad's coming to get me to lift me up. It's the same with you and I as believers. That history's going somewhere. That our father is coming to get us. That there's coming a day where all this will go away, and daddy's coming. All right, do you understand that? In Revelation chapter twenty-one, verses one through four, this is what John says. He says, "Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth, first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more." And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. James says, be patient while you await the return of the Lord. And that's hard, isn't it? Patience is something that all of us in this room struggle with. Patience is something that our society struggles with. If you look at technology, in a lot of ways, it's made our lives so much better. In a lot of ways, it's made our lives so much worse, hasn't it? A recent study shows that the average attention span is eight seconds. That's down from 12 seconds just in 2000. Some researchers argue that it's actually a lot less than even eight seconds. The average e-commerce site, right? So tomorrow when you're doing your Black Friday or your uh, Cyber Monday deal, the average site takes a little less than seven seconds to load. 40% of internet users will abandon a site that takes more than three seconds to load, costing millions to some, some sites every year right? Uh, I read a recent study that was really interesting, and it wasn't super scientific, but a guy set up at a restaurant one day, and he just watched the number of parents coming in with their children while they were out eating. And what he wanted to see is, is technology helping us with our children or making us worse? And the parents that came in without cell phones, without technology, were kinder, more patient, and gentle with their children than the ones that were sitting over there texting the whole time. Leave me alone, right? We've become impatient in so many different ways. Every single one of us in this room would have to raise our hands and admit that at some point this week you got angry at a piece of technology because it wasn't moving or working as quick as you'd like it to, right? Amen. Absolutely. What James says, to be patient. That his return is a lot closer than you think. We're closer right now than when we walked in the room. And folks, listen, you know how time works, right? It always shows up a lot faster than we think it will. Let me give you a good Texas analogy. We'll be watching the boys do two-a-days before we know it. Right? It'll be back quicker than we think it will. Football's coming, okay? It'll be back. Having kids could be described as long days and fast years, amen? My little boy will be three before I know it. I don't know where the time's gone. It's already Christmas. It just feels like I just did this yesterday. It's crazy. James says, be patient. Hold tight. You're almost there. So every bit of difficulty and suffering and weariness and depression and anxiety that we struggle with in this life will be over one day. That there will no longer be a need to fight and hang in there because guess what? 
Our Father's coming. And what James wants you and I to know is this, is that while we wait, while we patiently await the return of the Lord, that God is doing something in us in the waiting. Look at the second part of verse 7. Let's just read the whole thing. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Then he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So Palestinian farmers had to wait for two rains. They had to wait for the autumn rain to get the ground wet. Okay, it's a desert. And if they planted too soon, then the rain would come in and it would wipe out all their crop. So they had to be patient. They had to wait for that autumn rain to get the ground wet enough to put the the, the seed in the ground. But then they had to be patient enough to wait for the spring rain so that the, the fruit could go ahead and grow up to maturity before they cut it. If they jumped the gun on any of those, they could harm themselves. They could hurt themselves. And so it was a very difficult thing for them sometimes to be patient and to wait and to know that, listen, God's going to take care of this. The rains are coming. It's going to be okay. So what, Paul, what James is telling you and I is that while we wait, brothers and sisters, God's doing something in the mess and the difficulty of your life. So God's using all of your joy. God's using all of your sorrow to conform you into the image of his son. So what it means then for you as a believer in this room is that any difficulty you face in your life is not punitive. You're not being punished for skipping that quiet time this week because you ate too much turkey and slept in on Friday morning. Okay? You're not being punished. See, if you're in Christ and you're a believer, you are fully accepted and loved as a son or daughter of God. That there's absolutely nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. That you need to get your minds around that and you need to rest in that. But that doesn't mean that he still doesn't have work to do in your life. He still desires to make you more like Jesus. So so put it this way. I I love Ellie Grace sitting down here. She is a wonderful nine-year-old girl. And there's nothing she could do to make me love her any less than I do as my child. We still got some work to do, though, okay? So, so part of that is rewarding what's good. The other part of that is disciplining what's wrong and having conversations over those things. It's the same for you as a son or daughter of God. See, the Bible says that the Lord will discipline those He loves. And there is a great difference between discipline and punishment. See, difficulty is not God punishing his children, but it's God shaping and molding his children to be more and more like Jesus Christ. James has already argued this point. Remember, myth one, trials are bad. James chapter one, verses two through four, what's he say? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James says, be patient. God is accomplishing something in you. So whatever your struggle is, whatever your difficulty is, God is doing something in the midst of that. God's at work in your joy. He's at work in your loss. James says, don't lose heart. Be patient. God is accomplishing things. Be patient. He's at work. Be patient. He's coming soon. Verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. 
He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James has said, Be patient, the Lord is coming. Be patient, he's working in your life while you're waiting. And then he gets really practical. Remember, myth uh, number three was that our faith is a private matter. In this whole section of James chapter 5, he's talking about the corporate life of the church. So what he says is, be patient while you live with one another. He's talking to us, the church. And what he says there is, he says, don't grumble against one another. So don't, gosh, that guy. Oh, sheesh, that girl. See, what he means is that You've received the same amount of grace as others. So in the way that others get on your nerves, there's probably a good chance that you're getting on their nerves just as much. See, one of the greatest ways that Satan gets us as the body of Christ, one of the greatest ways he gets us to not walk in the joy of the Lord, is to get us to focus on the weakness of brothers and sisters around us. And then we begin to grumble and we begin to complain about them. I mean, I'm guilty of this as a pastor. I do it all the time. I get frustrated. I go, I've been at this five years, all right? They're not getting it. It's wearing me out. And I grumble and I complain. We do it as a congregation, congregation with one another, don't we? You're all guilty. It's okay. It's a safe space. See, remember, we're on this linear line, and all of this is headed somewhere. So that means that the Lord is still working in each and every one of us. And so if it's a linear line, some of us may be way up here on the line while the rest of us are back here. But the point is, is that we have all been given the same amount of grace. So we should be patient with one another in our shortcomings. We should be patient with one another in our disagreements. So we will have disagreements. We're all a bunch of sinners that need Jesus. We will have disagreements. We will have times that we don't get along. But listen, those disagreements doesn't mean that we should divide. Jared Wilson, in a recent post on For the Church, shows what can happen when we're not careful. He says, what's not okay is turning your disagreement into a campaign of division against someone. Sometimes congregants are so driven by their disagreements that they rehearse them in front of others. And this is usually gossip, which then leads to divisiveness. So James says to be careful about grumbling against your brother while you wait. Because he says, the real judge is standing at the door. So the only one who has a right to judge any of us in this room is standing at the door. And he's watching, is what James says. So what the point would be then is that we need to stop thinking that we're so awesome, that we're so far down the line in our spiritual maturity. Because when we begin to think that we're so awesome, we can't grasp the mercy that's been extended to us by the Lord Almighty. When I was a little boy, my, my grandmother had all these cats that lived under her house. And she, she, she decided one day that those cats needed to go. But she kept putting it off and putting it off because she was like, well, i got to get under the house to do it. Uh, and then she also knew what it was going to be like to try to get under the house and get a whole bunch of cats. And so finally one day, I'll never forget, she went and got a dirty clothes hamper. She took it outside and laid it down, and then she got these leather gloves on. She wrapped herself in trash bags like she was freaking going to war, right? And she goes out there, and for the whole day, she would crawl under that house, and she would come out with a cat, and usually that cat, you know, is just swatting and clawing and, and getting angry at her. And she would put it in a dirty clothes hamper, shut the lid, put a brick on top of it, and she did it all day long. 
And the reason she did it was because her house was, was about to be moved, okay? She lived in a trailer house. The house was going to be moved, and she didn't want those cats to die or to be left there. So she wanted to get those cats out, give them to somebody so that the cats could be kept safe. And see, the point I'm trying to make is that sometimes that's how we behave when it comes to the Lord, isn't it? is that there's so many different ways that he's trying to protect us. He's trying to look out for us, and he's trying to hold us up. And in those moments, what are we doing? We're swatting at him. We're, we're scratching at him. We're being angry with him. But then in all of that, he's so kind, and he's so patient, and he's so merciful, and he's so gentle for us, with us. See, if we would remember all the ways that we've taxed his patience as individuals, we would be a lot more gracious and merciful with one another if whenever that brother or sister begins to get on your nerves, instead of grumbling about them, you just go, okay, Lord, I get it. You've, you've been great. You've been, you've been patient with me. Okay, yeah, absolutely. You're right. So James says, be patient. The Lord's coming. Be patient. The Lord's doing something. Be patient with your brothers and sisters and understand the mercy that's been shown to you so that you can then extend that mercy to others while you wait. And then in verse 10, look what he says. He says, An example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So, so, so James, he's trying to encourage you and I, right? While we wait for the Lord's return, he says, be patient, I'm coming back. Be patient, I'm doing something with your pain. Be patient with one another as you wait. And then he encourages us by reminding us of the prophets and of Job. And the reason he does it is because if you look at the prophets and you look at Job, their lives weren't easy, were they? I mean, go look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah preached for almost 30 years with no converts, Right? We oftentimes like to go to that book of Isaiah where the Lord calls him and he's like, here I am, send me, Lord. Right? And we love to use that verse, but then there ain't one of us in here that wants Isaiah's ministry. We don't want to go preach for 30 years and not have anybody listen to us. But Isaiah did, and he remained faithful and steadfast until the end. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah had a rough go too. See, Jeremiah had to go tell a very nationalistic people, people that held their allegiance to their country over the Lord, he had to go tell those people that they would be conquered and taken into exile. To say, guess what? God really doesn't care about your country as much as you think it is. Somebody's going to come take you over. I mean, does anybody want that job? And then once they're in exile... God says, oh yeah, now I want you to go back to those people and tell them, oh yeah, now you've got to submit to the king and then I want you to establish yourselves in the city that you're in exile. I don't want you to build a life here and I want you to help this pagan city flourish. You ain't one of us signing up for that job. It gets so bad that every time Jeremiah opens his mouth, he's beat, he's punched, he's thrown in a ditch, and at one point in his life, his best friends in his hometown get together and say, we have to kill this guy. But yet, in spite of all of that, Jeremiah stayed faithful to the Lord until the very end. Then James says, what about Job? He says, consider Job. Now, Job is not the book of the Bible that you go to going, man, I really want to be encouraged today. Let's go read Job. So let me just give you the Cliff Notes version of the book of Job. It opens with God on his throne, 
and Satan enters into the throne room. And God says, hey man, what have you been up to? And Satan says, out looking at the sons of man. And God's like, oh yeah, hey, have you seen my boy Job? You seen him down there? And Satan says, of course, he praises you, he loves you, and, and why wouldn't he? I mean, you've done everything for him, you've blessed him. But Satan says, hey, listen, here's the deal, God, if you'll take everything away from him, I guarantee you he'll curse your name. And God looks at Satan, he says, all right, go ahead. And so what we read in the following verses is that Job loses everything. All seven of his children die. All of his wealth vanishes. And the only thing that's left is his wife. And when you read the book, you realize that's not a very good thing. And when, when all this is taken away, the Bible says that Job tears his clothes. He mourns and he says, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan walks back in and God says, you hear that? My boy's down there singing Matt Redman. He's praising me. He's lifting up his, his voice to me. I thought you said he would curse me. What happened, Satan? And so Satan says, well, take his health. If you'll just take his health, if you'll take that away, then he'll curse you. And God says, okay, yeah, that's cool. Just don't kill him. Which if you think about it, that's great, right? That, that, that although um, uh, uh, God has allowed this, although God says, yeah, sure, take his health away, just don't kill him, that God agrees to let Satan harm him, but even in that, God sets the parameters on what Satan can and can't do. That he's so sovereignly in charge of all things that he says, yeah, sure, go ahead, just, just don't hurt him. So boils break out all over Job from the top of his head down to his toe, toes. Job's wife sees him uh, and sees all this. And, and Job's wife is just really nagging. And she just leans over him and says, curse God and die, Job. Just get it over with. Which, I mean, it's wonderful encouragement, right, from your wife. But anyways, the last five chapters of the book of Job show us how God shows up. He meets Job in his brokenness. He heals Job. He restores to Job all that he's taken. And we see the compassion and love of God made manifest in a man's life, even in the most difficult of days. And the reason James uses this is because outside of Jesus, nobody has suffered more than Job. So James says, listen, consider Job. Even through all of the hurt, even through all the difficulty of his life, God's promises were true. That God never betrayed him. God never lied to him. God never failed him. And so brothers and sisters, that's encouragement for you and I that through whatever it is you walk through, God has never lied to you. God has never betrayed you. God's promises are true. And so I don't know what it is you've brought into the room today. Maybe 2019 just needs to go away for you. Maybe some of the year's been terrible. Maybe some of it's been great. Maybe it's all been great. I, I, I don't know. I, I would bet that there's a lot more hurt and struggle than there has been good times, though, for a lot of us. And what James wants you to know is to be patient. That God's promises for you are true. That God has never promised you a life of ease and comfort. He never promised you a life without tears. He just told you that it was all going to be worth it. To cling to Him, to hold on and to keep your eyes looking forward to the day that Jesus returns. And folks, listen, we know that his promises are true because of the Bible. See, he promised our first parents all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that he would send a Savior 
that he would send a rescuer, a redeemer, to come and do battle with the serpent, to save people from their sins, and he did. That's what we're celebrating right now, is that he sent Jesus to be born in a manger, to be born of a virgin, to do what we could not do, to live a perfect life, to take our sins upon himself, to rise again, defeating Satan's sin and death, and to promise that one day he would return. And listen, he will. We know it's true. So in this in-between time, as we continue to wait, as sometimes it seems like it's taking forever, what James would say is be patient. Jesus is coming again. Be patient. He's working on you in the midst of your sorrow and in the midst of your joy. Be patient with one another with the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ as we await his return, knowing that the true judge is standing at the door. Be patient as you look back on stories of the Bible and you remind yourself of God's faithfulness, that God can be trusted no matter what it is that you walk through right now. So as we enter into the season, one of the big things I told you at the beginning is that you're going to see on every television show, every commercial it's going to be the idea that this is going to be the year that it's just all going to come together, right? That, that you're going to go to Kay Jewelers or Jared and you're going to give her that ring or that, that necklace and it's going to do, and do all the stupid things you've done this year, right? There's not going to be any family tensions. There's not going to be any broken relationships. All that's going to be healed. All the depression is going to go away. All the pain of 2019 will just vanish on Christmas morning. Right? The kids are actually going to like their presents this year and not play with the box. The kids are actually going to get along all day long. That Christmas will be so great that there will be no Christmas blues at all this year, right? And you know what that is, right? Where we put so much weight on Christmas Day and when it can't deliver, we're depressed because we thought it was going to fix everything that was wrong. That this is going to be the year that we hype up Christmas so much that it's just going to fix everything wrong with you. And I hope maybe that does work out for you this year. But odds are it's not going to. <laughs> and so can I offer you something better this year for Christmas? And not just for Christmas, but for every month of 2020. Can I hold out for you, Jesus? See, all these promises of reconciliation and relationships made right that you're going to see on commercials, that you're going to see on movies, all these Christmas specials, they're just shadows of a greater reality. So instead of looking at those things and allowing just to terminate on themselves, could you then fix your eyes forward to the day that Jesus comes back and we know that those things really will happen? That there's coming a day where everything will be made new and the longings of our hearts will be satisfied. And then there's the reality of, of hurt hearts in this room, of broken relationships that, listen, they may not get fixed this year. It may not all come together. But instead of getting angry about those things, could you allow those things to make you long for the coming day when all will be made right by Jesus Christ? So brothers and sisters, until then, until he comes back, as we enter into this season, could we wait patiently for the Lord? Could we wait patiently know that he's working in your mess? Could we wait patiently with one another, realizing that we're all on this same line going somewhere? And the same amount of grace that's been given to you has been given to me. 
And can we remind ourselves of the faithfulness of the Lord that He has never lied to us, that He's never betrayed us, and that all of His promises are true. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for all that You've given us, and I thank You for the Christmas season. Uh, I do thank You for the promises of reconciliation and, and joy and peace and, and, and newness, Father. I pray for each and every person in this room. I pray for those who have just had a difficult year. That, Father, today that they would be encouraged that although it's been a difficult year, that, that it was for not, that it's not uh, wasted. That, 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 Father, you've been doing something in all their pain and all their sorrow. And that, Father, you would encourage their hearts, that you would strengthen their hearts, as James says, to remember that you have not forgotten them or betrayed them, but that your promises are true. And that all these things are conforming them more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we just continue to be patient with one another as we walk this linear line of history, Father. That we realize that the same grace that's been extended to me has been extended to everybody. And that we would love one another, encourage one another. That we'd be patient with one another. Knowing that the only judge, the true judge, is standing at the door. And then finally, Father, I just pray that we would encourage our hearts, that we, would, that we would look back on stories of your faithfulness found throughout the entirety of the Bible to realize that, Father, what you said would happen will happen. You promised to send Jesus. You did. You promised Jesus is coming back, and he will. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for Christmas. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.